What a wonderful message and song this morning. Thank you, always, for that beautiful ministry and song. Certainly, the only way of salvation is not through any works which we can do, but only through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we would have eternal safety and security, it must be in Jesus Christ, the solid rock. Beautiful music this morning. Thank you, choir, and all your musicians who worked so hard this weekend. We thank you, Brian and, and Fauna, for coming and ministering with us uh, today and uh, for all the investments you made yesterday in our music ministry. Take your Bibles now and turn with me to Acts chapter 6, begin in verse 7. Remember that 7 was the last verse of our text uh, before, but we want to pick it up here. There's some points that I want to kind of make and uh, as we move forward. We're going to be looking now at the story of Stephen. We know that he was the first recorded martyr um, in the book of Acts. And so we're going to be looking at his stand, his ministry. And we're going to receive, I believe this morning, from the word of God, some personal challenges And this is not so much challenges in what we do as much as it is in how we allow God to transform us. Look me in verse 7. The Bible says, And the word of God increased. The number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Verse 7 could be translated, They kept on, the word kept on increasing, and they kept on multiplying. This is a continual action. This is continuing to happen. We know that the church by this time in Jerusalem was more than 20,000 people. When it talks about a great number of the priests coming to the faith, we don't know what that number was. We do know that during this time period, there were approximately 18,000 priests that would come. They would serve a two-week, quote, tour of duty at the temple. And uh, so they would come. And of course, we know that the church, Jerusalem, would meet at Solomon's porch, which was part of the temple complex. And there, the signs and wonders done by the apostles verified the message, the power of the Spirit of God through the Word of God, that truth was transforming lives as people turned from trusting in the religious good works and their own moral character through trying to keep the law, through trying to give a sacrifice, and they realized Jesus is the Messiah, the one foretold who would die, who would be buried, who would rise again from the dead. He is the only hope of eternal life. A great number of these priests, sincere in their worship and service of God, began to understand by the power of the Spirit of God as the apostles preached And many of them were being saved. But we also realize that whenever souls are being saved, whenever the church is thriving, satanic opposition will be present or right around the corner. And so we see a shift here in the story of the early church in the book of Acts as we look at this passage this morning. But we're going to focus on Stephen's character. We're going to to look from uh, Stephen's story this morning and asking God to transform us, to challenge us through the truth of his word as we see it here in this text. Look with me, if you would, back in verse 3 of chapter 6, and then we're going to go down to verse 8, because the first thing I want you to see is Stephen's sanctified character. Look in verse 
3. Wherefore, brethren, this is when the apostles were saying, look, it's not fit, it's not right for us to leave the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer and to serve tables. Remember, there was the problem of the daily ministration to the, to the Hellenistic Jewish widows who had put their faith in Christ. And as this church is growing, one of those issues with that growth was that some of the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food and of the finances and other things, the resources that they needed. And so these are the qualifications. Remember, Stephen was one of these deacons. And here's one of the qualifications that speaks to Stephen's sanctified character. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out from among you seven men of honest report. Going back. And full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. He had a transparent testimony of godliness. We also, who are saved and dwelt by the Spirit of God, ought to be walking in such a way that we also have a transparent testimony of godliness. It is nothing that we can fabricate. It is nothing that we can put on. It is nothing that we try to work psychological games to get people to think that we're godly it's not putting on pious airs this is a humble transparent testimony they were they were a good report that is they had a got a transparent testimony of godliness also they were they were filled with the holy spirit what does that mean to be filled with the spirit so you know that there is a quote revival going on at asbury college in kentucky uh, I will address that a little bit. That's not going to be the main part of what I address next Sunday night before we pray for revival here. But I want you to understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe, according to the scriptures, that the moment a person trusts Christ as Savior, immediately the Holy Spirit indwells them permanently and seals them to the day of redemption. If you want to study that out, look in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4, the two first passages I would send you to. There are others but I would encourage you to study those passages first. You see, it's not that we need the Spirit to fall fresh on us. We don't need to invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill the atmosphere. The Holy Spirit is already indwelling believers. The Holy Spirit is here. God is here. We don't need to feel a presence of God. He is here because he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Whether you feel something or not, whether you experience something or not, God is true. And in him is no darkness at all. God cannot lie. God is here. The Spirit of God is here because he indwells us. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. There's a sense in which it is supernatural and mysterious. But God delineates in his Word how he works. And it is not just what we feel and it's not just what we experience. It is the truth of the Word of God personally applied by the Holy Spirit to where I'm living right now today to transform my life. That's what revival is. We're going to talk about that some next week. If you're interested in studying a passage of Scripture, look at the last half of Romans chapter 13 and begin to study that. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It means to be emptied of self and completely submitted to the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to be completely submitted to the Holy Spirit? It means whatever the Spirit of God, whether through your Bible reading, verses you've memorized, or, or are you here in a message and the Spirit of God says, this is what needs to change in your life. You say, yes, sir. You don't argue. You say, yes, sir, but God, I cannot change myself. I can choose to obey your word. 
I can choose to submit myself to your Holy Spirit. But transformation is a supernatural work of your word. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. God, sanctify me, cleanse me, make me holy, make me a vessel dedicated my whole life. No matter what my occupation, no matter what my talents and abilities, no matter my background, no matter my hobbies, Lord, my life needs to be set apart for your service. And part of that means I need to be clean. I need to be cleansed from sin by maintaining fellowship. That is when the Spirit of God to a believer says, that is disobedience, that I agree. And I say, yes, Lord, and and I want to turn from that. I'm, I'm asking you to cleanse me from that, restore me in fellowship with you. I want your Holy Spirit to be absolutely, completely in control. Now, Lord, strengthen me in your grace. Sanctify me through your truth. Change the way I think, the way I live, the way I prioritize, the way that I respond. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be so emptied of yourself that you are completely controlled by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. And by the way, that is a lifelong, constant pursuit. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says, And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption. What grieves the Spirit of God? Disobedience. You studied that context He talks about let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I believe in that context and the way that I apply it personally to my life that to grieve the Holy Spirit is to do that which God's word forbids. And then the Bible also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the spirit. I believe that as the spirit of God through the word of God puts biblical commands and he urges me and moves me towards obedience, whether it is to witness, whether it's to encourage your brother and sister in Christ, whether it's to confront an erring brother or sister in Christ, or whatever it may be. That when I, for whatever reason, whether it's fear or inconvenience or whatever, refuse to respond to that. Anytime in a message or when a brother or sister in Christ confronts me and I doubt that what they're saying has any validity in my life, I'm quenching the Spirit of God. Quench not the spirit. Be so emptied of yourself and your opinions and your perspective that you are filled with a biblical perspective as taught you by the spirit of God. He was wise also. The Bible says these men were full of wisdom. That is, he was able to apply biblical truth in a practical way. And then he was full of faith, grace, and spirit-endued power. Look with me, if you would, in verse 8. The Bible says in Acts chapter 6, in verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. I love the way one Bible scholar dealt with the issue or the phrase that he was full of faith. What does that mean? I love it. Listen how this was worded. I think it will be helpful to you. Stephen gave unlimited credence to the promises of his Lord. He was full of grace. The reason the commentator mentions that is that in some of the older manuscripts, many of them, instead of he was full of faith, says he was full of grace. I believe that both would apply. Receiving the fulfillment of these promises, he enjoyed much of the unction of the divine spirit and much of the favor of his God. And in consequence, he was full of power. That is full of divine energy by which he was enabled to work great wonders and miracles among the people. He was full of faith because he gave unlimited credence to the promises of his Lord. 
And he was fulfilling that great commission, Mark 16, 15, going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And as he was walking in obedience, in a faithful uh, trust in the promises of God and his unlimited power and resources, God then entrusted to this man who was surrendered to him, who was walking consistently in obedient fellowship with him. He empowered him to be able to work these signs and wonders, these miracles that verified the message of the gospel. Stephen was not about signs and miracles. In the next chapters, we see him in his defense on trial. He is preaching the gospel. The whole reason here, while he is facing opposition and persecution, was not because he did signs and miracles, but because of the preaching of the word of God. The sign and the miracles were verification from God that the message that Stephen and the, uh, and the, the, the apostles were preaching was directly from God and was eternal scriptural truth though it had not yet been put in written form. But I want you to see, second of all, Stephen's powerful ministry. Continue, we just read verse 8. Continue on with verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue and, and actually synagogue, it could have been a synagogue like a place or a couple of different synagogues, okay? And Bible scholars dig into this. But you know, I love Lenski, who, who writes, look, synagogue literally means a group. This is an assembly. It could have been an assembly of, of different congregations, of different synagogues there in the Jerusalem area. That is probably true, but that is not the point. The point is that this was a synagogue, or you might say a syndicate. It was a conglomeration or a gathering of different groups together in a unified purpose and they're opposing stephen he says the synagogue of the libertines the cyrenians the alexandrians and then of cilicia and asia disputing with stephen look at this verse 10 and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake what a testimony God authorized and enabled Stephen to perform supernatural signs and miracles which affirmed that he was preaching God's truth. God was using Stephen's ministry in such a powerful way that it, grew, that it drew aggressive opposition. And when we preach Christ crucified and risen as the only hope of man's salvation, that men are sinners condemned to eternal death in hell and in desperate need of the only way of salvation. That is through a personal trust relationship with Jesus Christ who died on the cross paying the full payment sacrifice for sin, was buried and rose again. And there's a personal faith response to Jesus Christ claiming that gift that he paid for with his death on the cross, asking and confessing the need for that forgiveness and cleansing from sin and receiving by faith and claiming the gift of eternal life. Trusting Jesus to do what he promised to do. John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. But when we preach the gospel and when we live godly, we've been warned we will suffer persecution. And Stephen's ministry drew aggressive opposition. God's enemies could not resist the heavenly wisdom and zealous sincerity of Stephen. When the Bible talks about that, when it talks about spirit, that's a Greek word for zeal, but it's a compound word and it has the idea of most zealous sincerity. He was passionate about what he was preaching. He was preaching the truth. Yeah, I think personally that the Bible tells us who these people were. 
these Hellenistic Jews from different parts of the world. And I believe they had come to Jerusalem because they had sought for and committed to what they thought was the proper worship of the one true God through Judaism. And certainly up to that point, that was true in a sense. Now, a lot of what was intended by God through the Old Testament as worship had been convoluted and perverted by those in Jesus' earthly ministry time frame and in this time frame of the, of the early church. But I believe that these were sincere seekers believing that they were believing the truth. And you know what? There are many sincere but deceived religious people that often argue with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because our pride says, I can't be wrong. There's a fallacy, there's a lie of the devil floating through our society that says, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. That's hogwash. Because you can sincerely believe you don't have cancer even when a doctor diagnosed you. And you can refuse all treatment and just think that it's the doctor's imagination in spite of all the evidence and all the tests and everything else and all the symptoms. And you can just ignore that and die of cancer because you weren't willing to be treated. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have or how sincere you are. If you have cancer, you have cancer. And it doesn't matter how sincere a person is. If their faith is not only in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life, they will perish in the second death in the lake of fire for all of eternity. But let me tell you about a man who is also very sincere, but grew up sincerely wrong, who responded right to the gospel, just like many of the priests. The Bible says in verse 7, responded to the faith. They believed the embodiment of the truth that the apostles were preaching. They put their faith in the risen Son of God. And they were saved. They were converted. But there's a man named Jesse Overholzer who grew up in a Dunkard Brethren church. Uh, He believed that salvation was by faith and works. They had high standards. One One of the odd things was they were not allowed to wear clothes that had any buttons. Yeah, and, and so it was, and, and if you wore buttons, then you, were, you, couldn't, you couldn't be saved because salvation was by faith and works. And that was one of the things you had to do. You couldn't wear clothes that had buttons, all right? This was in the 1800s. This was in the United States, okay, when this happened. Late 1800s. Jesse, in God's providence, bought a box of used books, including one called The Life of D.L. Moody. He actually, his denomination had warned him against the dangerous teachings of D.L. Moody. And in his heart, he knew he should just burn that book and be done with it. But he left it in his library for over 10 years. And in 1914, when there was a quarantine for scarlet fever, he had 13 weeks at home. And so he pulled it out and he read it. And he learned a doctrine he'd never really learned under the Dunkard brethren. And that was the doctrine of grace. He discovered it. And Moody's testimony and clear gospel message in that book led Jesse to a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Years later, God used Jesse over Hotzer to be the founder of Child Evangelism Fellowship, which has had an incredible ministry of reaching children and their families with the gospel for many years. Getting back to, to Stephen. Stephen, 
evinced such a spirit of zeal and sincerity that they, which they could not withstand, which served more than mere argument could have done to convince them that he was right. The evidence of sincerity, honesty, and zeal in a public speaker will often go further to convince the great mass of mankind than the most able argument if delivered in a cold and indifferent manner. And let me stop and say this. I think this is one of the reasons why the Asbury Revival is so attractive to so many people. Even though I believe that there is some dangerous theology to which they could be attracted to in that revival, people, I think, are being attracted because there are people that are zealous about this, that are passionate about this, that are sincere about this. And people who are seeking for an encounter with God hear what's going on and are drawn to that, even if what is often being promoted is more general statements than specific Bible truth being preached. And I'm not saying that's not happening because I don't know. But if we who have the truth and preach sound doctrine in a cold, formal manner, if that's the way we witness, if that's the way we live as Christians, it's no wonder the world is not convinced that what we're preaching is the truth. I'm not talking about having, if you don't have an outgoing salesman kind of a personality and you're not dynamic and outgoing and all of that, that you can't win people to Christ. Some of the most effective soul winners I've known in my life were people that were more quiet and private, but they were zealous and they were passionate and they were compassionate and they believed in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his power to save from sin. And they realized that if Christ died for all, then we're all dead. And so they are proclaiming the gospel and they are effectual soul winners, even though they're not outwardly dynamic because enthusiasm does not have to be bombastic. But there ought to be such a zeal and such a passion and such a burden in the way that we, and a joy too, a joy and a peace in the way that we live as believers and the way that we proclaim the gospel that is as powerful and irresistible in the, pro- in the proclamation of the gospel as Stephen's. They could not resist the wisdom and the spirit and the zealous, fervent sincerity by which he spake. When the Bible says they could not resist the wisdom by which he spake, the verse James 3.17 came to my mind. I believe this also was part of Stephen's demeanor as he would have been filled with the Spirit and preaching with this ardent zeal. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated. See, even though the Bible says that these people disputed with Stephen, Stephen did not pick a fight with them. He was not being obnoxious. He was zealously, sincerely preaching the truth and pleading with people to trust Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal life, to come to him for the forgiveness of sin, to trust him to be their savior. And yet I believe he did it with a pure, peaceable, gentle, easy-to-be-entreated spirit, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Stop and meditate on it. I challenge you to memorize that verse and meditate on that verse and ask God to transform you so that that, that could be an accurate description of you because I'm praying God will do that for me. That we would be pure, peaceable, gentle, 
easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without hypocrisy, without partiality. But then let's look at Stephen's opposition and persecution, verses 11 to 14. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him, caught him and brought him to the council. That'd be the Sanhedrin. Set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So this is the persecution and opposition he is facing. First of all, false witnesses brought the most controversial accusation for Jerusalem Jews to have heard. This would have then prompted, and it was prompted by this opposing alliance that we read about in verse 9. Man, you don't speak against Moses. Moses delivered to us the law. Hold it. Did Moses write the law? Hey, even the very Ten Commandments were written on a tablet by the very finger of God. God spoke to holy men who wrote what the Spirit of God told them to write. They preached verbatim what God told them to preach. Moses delivered the law, but the law was given to Moses. It may remind you how John opens his epistle. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Christ said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But if your hope and expectation of eternal life is through good works in keeping the law, then you are eternally condemned because the law itself is insufficient. There shall no flesh be justified in his sight by the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Well, this false witness brought this most controversial. He's speaking against Moses because to speak against Moses then who delivered to the people of Israel the law, was to then speak against God himself. That's why it says he spoke against Moses and against God. He's speaking these blasphemous words. They incited the populace of Jerusalem, including its leadership against Stephen. You know, popular opinion can easily be shaped. The same crowds that praised Jesus a couple days later called for his crucifixion. The crowds that loved the apostles opposed Stephen. This is why we should never let popular opinion shape the vision of the focus of the church, but let it rest on God's eternal word. And then they put Stephen on trial before the Sanhedrin by false witnesses. They brought them before the council. Listen to these observations. The fact that... Stephen had not actually spoken against the holy place and the law. It's obvious by the fact that they had the suborn men as false witnesses to say something that was not true. Stephen had not spoken against the law. He had not spoken against the temple. He was preaching Jesus Christ. But they didn't like it. And they took his words out of context. When they could not answer, one writer said, when they could not answer Stephen's arguments by, as a disputant, they prosecuted him as a criminal and brought false witnesses against him. This is Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry said, And it's next to a miracle of providence that no greater number of religious persons have been murdered in the world by way of perjury and pretense of law when so many thousands hate them who make no conscience of false oaths. 
I wrote this. We should never be surprised at the tactics of Satan and those he has deceived. Hey, folks, Satan doesn't fight fair. We're going to be lied against. We're going to be falsely accused. They falsely accused Jesus. Falsely accused Stephen. They falsely accused the apostles. We're going to be falsely accused. Satan doesn't play fair. This trial was a mock trial. It was not a real trial. There was nothing fair. Nobody had interest in really understanding what Stephen had said. They didn't dig in. They didn't go back and say, all right, what did Stephen actually say? What did he actually mean? There was no interest in that. They weren't interested in a fair trial. They just put on a formal guise in order to ease their conscience and excuse the murder of this godly man. But I want you to see, last of all, Stephen's unmistakable countenance. Look in verse 15. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. His face, one writer said, reflected the innocence and the power of the Spirit in his life. Another guy wrote this description of a person This is the description of a person who is close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence. Isn't it ironic that they spoke, they said that Stephen was speaking against Moses? Remember what happened when Moses came down from the mount? Having been in the presence of God, his face shone so brightly that he had to wear a veil over his face. And the Sanhedrin and these unbelievers so hardened in their heart didn't even make the connection. Wait a minute. Now they're staring steadfastly at him. And they see something evidence. I believe they saw the glory of God reflected and shining through Stephen through the influence of the Holy Spirit. I believe they saw on his face a calm, peaceful assurance of the promise of God that he would never leave nor forsake them. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He told his apostles that at the Last Supper. I'm sure that they had preached that and comforted the believing church there at Jerusalem many times with that. Stephen knew that by heart. And so with great assurance in the very power and the providence of God, no matter whether he faced death or not, no matter whether he faced all kinds of accusations and the malignment of his character and the destruction of his reputation in Jerusalem, Stephen was at peace. His face was not filled with fear or anguish or worry, but with a calm confidence and a boldness boldness only generated by the power of the Holy Spirit. He possessed a clear conscience, cheerful hope, and divine consolation in the face of death and danger. His very countenance reflected that he walked with God. So we come to the point of our invitation. And this morning we will have a come forward invitation. We don't always hear at Purim. But I believe it would be pleasing to the Lord if we did that this morning. So listen to these admonitions and the invitation carefully and then we'll stand. I will pray briefly. And then you're invited as our musician plays our hymn of invitation If you are a born-again believer, you know you have eternal life. But one of these admonitions is one the Spirit of God says, you need to do this and make this commitment. I'm going to encourage you to come forward and to kneel here at the front and to pray. Or if you can't kneel because of physical uh, limitations, just to sit on the front pew and to pray. If you'd like someone to pray with you or to counsel with you from God's Word or something in your life, please let one of us pastors know that. 
and we'll have somebody pair up with you and help you from the Word of God. If we need to, we can set up a later time to do counseling with you. It'd be our privilege to do that. If you don't know for sure where your soul would spend eternity, my first plea with you is this. If your faith is in anything or anyone other than in Jesus Christ alone, turn to him in faith today. You say, I'd like to do that, Pastor Todd. I'm not sure. How do I do that? How can I know my sins are forgiven, that I have eternal life? If you'd come for an invitation time, we'll take a trained Bible counselor and pair them with you. They'll take you to a quiet, private place. They'll sit down with you, and in a few minutes, they will review the gospel with you, answer any questions you have from the scriptures, so that you're absolutely clear about what you're going to do. And then you just simply pray to God and express to him repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised in Romans 10, 13, through the apostle Paul, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can have an absolute confidence. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And then these other admonitions I have are for all of us who are saved and that's why I stayed to them after this fashion. Here's the first one. Let's completely surrender to the authority and control of the Holy Spirit so that we can be mightily used of God. If you're a born-again believer and you do not have a strong desire and passion to be mightily used of God, and I'm not talking about publicly, mightily and publicly are not synonyms. I'm talking about being used by the power of the Spirit of God so that your life for Christ makes an eternal impact in others then why don't you come and spend some time at the altar and ask God to reveal you what you need to empty of yourself, what you need to confess and forsake, or what you need to put on so that you may be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's completely surrender to the authority and control of the Holy Spirit so that we may be used mightily of God. Next, let's seek for God to transform our character, mind, and heart so that we are filled with faith, grace, and wisdom. Folks, Stephen should not be the exception. Yes, he's listed by name. Because this is a pivotal thing that happened in the early church. But don't think that Stephen was an exception to the other believers in their character. Let's be so filled with the Spirit and with the Word of God that our proclamation of the gospel cannot be legitimately withstood. People might argue against it. People might reject it, but they cannot legitimately withstand it. And then let's, let it always be our great desire to be used of God in the fullness of his power for the fullness of his glory. And last of all, let's reflect Christ because we walk so closely with him that we radiate his likeness heavenly father we're about to begin our time of invitation we do not need to invite the holy spirit here because the holy spirit dwells every believer for those who are here that have not received the gift of everlasting life or some who may be joining us by way of live stream your holy spirit has been sent into the world to convince of sin righteousness and of judgment the world is the those who are part of this unbelieving present age 
May they turn from darkness to light, from death to life, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And may we who are believers now be emptied of ourselves to be filled with your spirit, fully surrendered, which means there's nothing too insignificant in our lives to ignore when you touch it. And there is no call to obedience too impossible for us to reject, but instead to step out by faith to obey what you through your word have moved us to do. May our life reflect grace and wisdom, the wisdom from above that is joyful, that is peaceable, that is gentle, that is full of mercy and of good works, that is without partiality and hypocrisy. Oh Lord, transform us into that. And may our lives and may our countenance and may our spirit, may our very demeanor reflect the very glory of God in whose presence we are to continually walk in fellowship so that our lives bring the glory that is due to you and so that you can use us as you use Stephen to preach the gospel. And Lord, should you allow then, as I would anticipate, severe opposition, give us the same grace in confidence, in fellowship with you, in power of your spirit and wisdom, to boldly stand and proclaim your truth, even in the face of danger or even death. So, Lord, may we be a committed church before you today in obedience to the truth we have heard and the working of your spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Would you stand right now? I'll be in the front. Other pastors will be in the front. Our pianist begins to play our hymn of invitation right now. Right now, would you respond?